Celebration Rock. Critical conversations about music. Presented by 93X and Uprocks.com. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. We have a huge, huge show here uh, this week. My guests are Jeff Tweedy and John Starrett from Wilco. Uh, Wilco was in town uh, here in the Twin Cities. They were technically in St. Paul uh, to play uh, three shows. Uh, earlier this month, it's the last shows that Wilco will be playing, not just of uh, 2017, but for the foreseeable future. Uh, the band's going on a hiatus. Uh, they will be back. It's not one of those like open-ended hiatuses, <laughs> you know, where you get nervous. You know, the sort of indefinite hiatus. That's like code for we're breaking up until we get enough money to do a, a reunion show at Coachella. Uh, it's not one of those things. This is just the band's taking a little bit of a break from the road. Sounds like they'll probably be back in 2019, but these were the last shows that they're, that they're going to be playing uh, for a while. And uh, I was at those shows, and they were they were really great. You know, I I had not seen Wilco for probably six or seven years, and I just was really blown away by how good they sounded and how much they still care and how much they were putting into it and and just the interplay between the musicians, which from my vantage point, and again, you know, I just saw them, so maybe I'm, uh, I, I have sort of the recency bias here, but they were really some of the best shows I've ever seen them play. And with a band like Wilco, who, you know, they've been around forever, uh, they've been really consistent, you know, throughout their career, it's an easy band to take for granted. And I think I had that for a long time. You know, I I think that's why I hadn't seen them for a while. You know, I saw them a lot in the 2000s, you know, and I live here in the Midwest. So Wilco is a fairly accessible band to see. You know, if if they don't come to your town one summer, they'll probably be there the next summer. One of those type of situations. And, you know, I saw a bunch of shows and I never saw a bad show. You know, there was no show where I said, I don't think I want to see this band again anytime soon every show was always good many of them were great um but you know i just felt like i've I've had my fill i don't need to see them again and somehow there was this long gap i have to say like when i was watching these shows i felt like a little emotional (laughs) watching wilco on stage because you know like when tom petty died part of the sadness of that for me was that i always thought of tom petty and the heartbreakers as a potential first concert for my kids. You know, it's the, they seemed like, you know, a good entry point into the world of rock shows. You know, go see Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. So many great songs. They're always good live. And it seemed like, you know, my kids could could get into that. You know, my son is five. I thought maybe by the time he's eight or nine or ten, I could take him to go see Petty. Um, and then, of course, Tom Petty died. And There will be no more Tom Petty shows. That's impossible. So when I was watching Wilco, it occurred to me that Wilco has filled that void for me. They are the reliable elder statesman, always great, even when you take them for granted. 
at some point you stop taking them for granted and you remember once again how good they are and you have to seize every opportunity to see a band like this and it just made me feel good you know to know uh knock on wood that uh maybe in three or four years i could take my son to a wilco show and this can be something that we share and maybe i can pass this down to him so i was thinking a lot about that um, I was also thinking a lot about the first two Wilco albums, because those two records are going to be reissued uh, on December 1st in expanded editions. And um, there is a personal connection for me to this, because I was asked to write liner notes for the second Wilco record, which is, of course, Being There, their 1996 double record. Uh, the band asked uh, if I would write 2,500 words about the history of the record and what this record means to me. And uh, of course, I was extremely honored by this because I am one of those people, I still buy physical records. I buy vinyl, I buy CDs. So liner notes matter to me. And to know that in some small way, my name is now integrated into the lore of Wilco. You know, maybe some kid who's never heard being there before will get this record as a Christmas gift and they'll read the liner notes that I wrote, and that will add to their appreciation of the band. If that even happens to one kid, I'm going to feel so happy. So when I met up with Jeff and John uh, in St. Paul, we ended up talking a lot about the early years of Wilco. You know, Wilco formed in 1995 in the aftermath of Uncle Tupelo breaking up. And of course, Jeff was in that band, and, and John joined towards the end of Uncle Tupelo. Um, So Jeff and John have been together as a unit now for 25-some years. It was fascinating to talk to them about that process of how Wilco became Wilco and not just sort of an adjunct band to Uncle Tupelo, which is what they essentially are on that first Wilco record, AM, which came out in 95, which is a great record. A lot of awesome songs on there that Wilco still plays to this day, but When you listen to that album, in a way, it kind of sounds like the last Uncle Tupelo record, more than a first Wilco record, whereas being there, you can really hear on that record the band that Wilco was going to become for the next 20-some years. Uh, So I talked to Jeff and John about this. We dug into the band's early history, uh, and they they were great. You know, I've interviewed Jeff Tweedy a couple of times before this. I actually interviewed John Starrett back in 2002 when I was working at my hometown paper. <laughs> it was my first job out of college. I did a phoner with John about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, uh, which was fun. I can't remember anything specific about that interview other than that John was nice. And then Jeff I've interviewed. Uh, this was the third time I interviewed Jeff. The, the, the most memorable time, maybe. I mean, this, this podcast was, was awesome. Um, but before that, I got to uh, actually interview him at the Wilco Loft for like two and a half hours when the Tweety uh, album came out, the album that he did with his son, Spencer. And you know, the thing with Jeff Tweedy is that he often will talk about how he's not crazy about the interview process or he's not crazy about how the music press will mythologize musicians. Um, but I've always found him to be a very engaging interview subject. Uh, that he, He's the kind of person where uh, if you give him a theory that you have about a song, 
in all likelihood, he is going to contradict that theory. (laughs) He is not going to agree with you. He's going to joust a little bit. Um, But he does it in a way that's very insightful. He doesn't just dismiss it. He'll come up with a sort of a counter explanation that ends up being really a fascinating thing to hear. And I think you hear that throughout this podcast. There's moments where I bring up, well, I think this song is about this. And uh, Jeff will shoot me down immediately. But then he'll kind of counter with his own thoughts on it, uh, which are invariably insightful. Uh, So this was a great interview. This was a big moment for me to have these guys on my podcast. Uh, Their publicist, Deb, told me that it's rare for Jeff and John to be interviewed together at this point. I guess they haven't done that in a long time. So that was really cool to get these two longtime partners and friends together and have them reminisce about how Wilco became Wilco. Uh, So without further ado, here is me, Jeff Tweedy, John Sterrett, talking about the early days of Wilco. Um, I was just going to say, last time I was backstage here at the Palace, I saw the guys from the War on Drugs, and they said that the next day they were going to visit the Wilco loft. Like, did they end up doing that? Uh, Some of them did. Yeah, not the whole band, but uh, uh, yeah, they came by. Um, Charlie, I think, the drummer, I think he has been by in in the past, and then uh, he brought a bunch of the other guys around. I mean, is that something that bands do when they're in town? Do they often just swing by? Seems like it these days, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we have a lot of guests. We we try and be open-armed. Sometimes we reach out to, like, bands that we see are coming through, and just to see if they want to come check it out, because... You know, it's a working studio, and when we're on the road, it's nice when it's being used. And um, but other times, people just like kind of get get to us somehow and and ask if they can come by and check it out. I know, like when I talk to bands, they almost regard it like as a movie set because they saw it in the documentary. Mm-hmm. So I imagine you get some of those kind of people too that just want to be like, "Oh, this is the scene where they were arguing about this <laughs> or whatever." <laughs> Well, yeah, I think so, but it doesn't look anything like it did in the in the movie. It's it's, yeah, it's a lot it's a lot better these days. Yeah. It's a lot more. It's yeah, it's kind of unrecognizable, really. I think yeah. from probably from other than the pillars, maybe, but yeah. kind of yeah, kind it, of unrecognizable. It's pretty un, It's pretty rearranged. Like the parts of the studio that we used as a studio then are more used for storage now. And, yeah. So these dates you're playing, are these like the last dates you're going to be playing for a while? Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to, you know, hibernate for for a year and and uh, give people a little break from the, the Wilco juggernaut. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of been standard practice lately, hasn't it? Like, it seems like you guys do a long tour and then there's like a little bit of a break and everyone kind of does their own thing for a little while. I don't know, we, we probably do, like as far as a really like strict, or a, not a strict, but a sort of really blocked off hiatus, we probably do it less than other bands, really, to be honest. Like yeah. there's always a sort of, we're always in this, um, you know, we're always in, in, a, in, a, in a mode of recording or, or, or playing, and we, you know, we've, I guess even one other time we've had a, a big one, but... Um, this one, you know, the way the last two records were, they were sort of a year, they came out a you know, it was like two, sh- two short records that came out a year apart. So in a way it kind of made the, it made that whole cycle 
more of a three-year, three-and-a-half-year thing. So that's unconventional, too, at the same time. Right. You know, I want to talk to you guys about these reissues that are going to be coming out on December 1st. This, that'll be a couple days after this podcast post. Um, and, uh, you know, they're really great sets, I should say, great reissues. And, you know, when you, when you reissue a record, you know, on one hand, it's a great way to introduce the record to people who maybe missed it the first time around, or maybe they weren't even born when the records came out. It kind of like, you know, kind of brings it up. <laughs> and then, like, for people like me that already love the records, there's, like, a real documentary aspect uh, to these reissues because you could dig into the, the outtakes and the demos and the live tracks, and you get a sense of... Went into, what, it, what went into the record and like some paths that weren't taken and it's, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, like for you guys, I know you're big music fans. Is that something that you get into? Like when there's a record that you love, that you already own, that gets reissued, are you one to get the reissue and to dig into all that extra stuff? Or is it just about the record for you guys? I think it probably depends on the record for me. I think it has to be kind of a really big record for me to really like you know just just immerse myself but but i have like quite a few records i can think of like for the forever changes reissue which is actually 50 years old as of three days ago that record but uh um yeah yeah i think um for the right there i think you know it's amazing that there are people that are such completists that they're that they're interested in it but i i do personally i i, I, just, I get into a few records like that i'm just happy they're still in print you know <laughs> <laughs> like, and 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 that they're you know there's enough of an interest i guess in in those records for people to be curious about uh other other evidence of what we were up to at the time which i'm surprised i've forgotten about a lot of it there's so much more than i thought there was um, in terms of outtakes and, and other demos and things like that. Yeah, but because as, as a first record, it was it was recorded really fast. It was, um, you know, uh, I, there weren't a multitude of songs, you know, so it was nice to see that, you know, yeah, it reminded of like, oh, yeah, well, that's cool. Well, and like in your liner notes are really evocative talking about how really the beginning of Wilco bled into the end of Uncle Tupelo. And it seems like, at least in the early stages, I mean, how clearly defined was it? I mean, was there ever a sense that we were just continuing Uncle Tupelo, or was it like this is a clearly defined band separate from that at the beginning? I mean, it seems like there's maybe not totally clear at the beginning. It was both. Was. Yeah. I think it was both, you know? I mean, it was like there wasn't any real... Um, there wasn't any real emotional break, time to you know to digest the end of one and the beginning of another. So in that sense, it was kind of seamless. And then, but at the same time, I think we were all pretty aware that we were starting something um, that had to be different. You know, had to be different from Uncle Tupelo because it wasn't. I don't know. For me personally, being there is really the first Wilco record where I wasn't writing songs that were, I don't know, reacting, reacting to Jay Farrar, you know, in some way or, you know, our, it, all through Uncle Tupelo, I wrote songs to go alongside Jay's songs, um, to enhance his songs, to be a part of like our group, or whatever, our group sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting too, because you write about this in the liner notes that how on that on those last tours or i guess that one last tour with uncle tupelo how the rest of the band had really bonded and how jay was sort of off on his own but like that seems like that was in a sense the beginning of you guys becoming 
a separate band. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. I really comment on that. That's funny. I, uh, but uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the main thing was that Jeff expressed interest in wanting to continue playing, and I think that was that was that just gave everyone hope. We were having a great time. I mean, there was obviously a lot of dynamic, so much history between you know between the original Uncle Tupelo guys. And we were we were sort of just happy to be playing in front of people, you know. Frankly, I think all the rest. Well, of and, you, and you joined the band in '92, right? I mean, you were and you were like a fan that kind of got incorporated into yeah. the band. Like, it's like were you originally like a roadie, and then well, they handed I, you a I guitar. I was in a band. I mean, it was like typical like '80s stuff. I, I contacted Uncle Tupelo to, to Tony to come down, and our band opened for their band in our hometown, and then they were nice enough to bring us on the road. So it was it was it was. But they did. I, I was in another band that sort of. Um, that that well, my band had dissolved. They called me on the, for the first European trip to to do guitars, and and I was I was more than happy to do that because I was also replacing Brian Henneman, who was their ex guitar tech. They had a they had a history of having guitar techs who would sit in, and I I kind of knew that and was like excited about that, and, and uh, so it, I didn't feel like it was like I, I didn't feel like it was my first and only crew experience ever. <laughs> so, you know, I was I was not a I was I didn't consider myself a roadie or anything. It was more a friend who was, you know, helping out. Those right. roles were never clearly defined in those days. It was uh, uh, more like a, a, a group of guys traveling around trying to, I don't know, put on shows without all of the skill sets that were needed <laughs> for, <laughs> for that particular endeavor. <laughs> Like when you wrote those songs for Am, I mean, did, were they written for Uncle Tupelo originally, or did you think that this would be for? Did you start already start stockpiling songs because you knew the band was ending? I think all of those songs were written um, for Wilco. I don't think that I had a whole lot of songs that were left over from the last. I mean, it, the Uncle Tupelo record. Um, wasn't out very long when when Jay quit, you know. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, time to kind of, you know, rejuvenate a whole different. I don't know what yeah, it was what, like. What, the it last couple like of shows months. were May like second and third, and then we were in the studio in less than a month. We went. I went to St. Louis like two weeks later for yeah. rehearsal for yeah. that. And isn't it true that like the recording of "I Must Be High" on the record? That's like the first time you guys performed together. Uh, it's the first time we rolled any tape. We had played together, like just in Tony Margarita's office in uh, Maplewood, Missouri, with uh, just acoustic guitars and a tiny little guitar amp with Brian Henneman, and just kind of ran through the arrangements as much as we could without making hardly any noise, you know? <laughs> and so it was the first time we plugged in and used a full drum kit, and then they rolled tape, and that's what's on the record. And what was the urgency at that? I mean, because you just said, like, the, you played the last shows in May, and a month later you're already working on a new Wilco record. I mean, why not take a year or six months? My, I, my, my urgency, the urgency I had was I was having the best time of my life. I couldn't believe that things were going as well as they were going for Uncle Tupelo, and, and, and I couldn't believe anybody would want to give that up. So I wanted to keep it going and keep the momentum going. <laughs> Otherwise, I thought if, the, if uh, 
Sire or Warner Brothers or Reprise or whoever had any control over it had time to think about it, they'd change their mind. <laughs> you know, I, honestly, I just this is they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna pull back this offer at some point. So, so like a little bit of fear, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strike while they still have the people on the phone, and yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, because I, I don't know if people realize that about that record. That I mean, there wasn't even really like a set lineup at that time because he had Brian Henneman playing a lot of the guitar parts, but he was already in the Bottle Rocket, so he wasn't in the band necessarily, but he played a big part on that record. Yeah, I think I think that in my mind, I thought that if we made a record and we, you know, dangled it out in front of Brian long enough, he'd join the band and want to be a part of it. He's such, such he he fit in so so well, and it was like he's such a great guitar player. His guitar parts on to me that his his playing makes that it's record. It's so true. It's, yeah. it's like the best, literally the best thing about the record, and even the way that he and Max sort of play together, and they, they it was really. I mean, it was incredibly natural. You know, I just remember him, and he bar he used all my guitars too. Yeah, he didn't yeah. have I had a I had a Gretsch Corvette and a and a and a, and a Les Paul Junior. And I remember just just pl every amp we plugged into, he just kind of great. Yeah. It was just kind of like just go, you know. He was he was in a gin soaked haze going through a breakup. And so, <laughs> yeah, it was like, he was a, yeah, he was a sad sack uh, yeah, all the, right. when he wasn't playing the guitar. And yeah, like, I read like a story like on like, Casino Queen, you can hear bottles clanking and that's like him. That's totally that's contrived. <laughs> but there, those yeah. bottles definitely were emptied by him, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite songs on AM is uh, Passenger Side, and that's been one of the more enduring songs from that record. And one of the things I think that's really interesting about it too is that, uh, especially listening to that, uh, listening to that song in light of what you did on being there, is that you know, like Passenger Side to me could be like a John Prine song. You know, it's like a small town vignette, basically a straightforward narrative. And very soon after that, you went in a totally different direction in writing more like in a more of an impressionistic style. You know, mm -hmm. not as direct. And mm -hmm. I just wanted you to talk about that, I guess, that shift in your songwriting, like what prompted that uh, change? Uh, I mean, it was obviously a fruitful change. You just have to wait around a lot longer for those kinds of songs, you know, like, uh, um, so I have a lot of musical ideas and, and uh, I was having trouble um, finding ways into the musical ideas with lyrics. Um, and occasionally I'd come up with a story that was really direct and, and, and then all the rest of the time I, I wasn't very happy with things that were coming out of me to try and just finish songs. So I tried to teach myself how to write poetry and, and learn how to, you know, kind of experiment with language to, to, just to finish songs. I just wanted to finish songs and have them feel like things I could sing over and over and over again and not get sick of. And, um, you know, I wish, personally, I, I wish I wrote more songs that were direct and had a clear, you know, angle to them, like Passenger Side, but I'm just not, I'm just not that good at that. It's like, it's so but, hard. It's really hard. <laughs> it's, it's really incredible. a lot, it's really hard, you know? I feel like I found a way to express myself without that coming to me all the time, but I, I definitely don't, I've never turned my back on those songs when they've come around. I think there are some on each of our records that just um, 
kind of ended up starting to get overshadowed by a more uh, uh, abstract approach. I mean, did you feel like at AM that you had a signature style yet? Or I mean, were you still reaching for that at that point, you think? I don't feel like I have a signature style now. <laughs> I honestly feel like I'm always, I, I mean, ideally, I think that's what is satisfying to me is to always be reaching and to try and find ways to surprise yourself and make things that, that uh, you didn't know you could make. Um, it's all still pretty based on hero emulation and worship of like records. I love records and I just want to make more of them. But um, no, I did not think I had a unique, defined style. One of the things that's really cool about the AM set, too, is that there's a couple songs that you wrote for the record or wrote around that time that didn't end up on AM. And I'm just wondering, you know, as the band developed, it obviously moved in, in the direction that it went. How did that work out in terms of having, you know, different songwriters in the band? And obviously Jeff ended up being the dominant songwriter. Was that ever a weird thing or a tense thing to figure out? I mean, I, I always understood. I think, I think it was more, more than anything. I sort of like, you know, there was something, I think, you know, Jeff, had, there were definitely overtures made to, like this, obviously, demo songs on records. And, and a lot of it was just my sort of, you know, I think, it, you know, especially at that point, you know, I, he had been in a partnership for a long time. I didn't exactly grab the man. I didn't grab the, I didn't seize the, 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 the situation. I was, I was still, we were all living separately. I didn't really just move to Chicago. You know, my, you know, I, I, I was, I, I would say I was definitely still a little bit more in a casual sort of um, way, you know, I wasn't writing daily the way he was and, you know, it just wasn't. And, um, and I think, you know, I think we get to, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it came, I'm surely came down to the point where you had been sharing songwriting with you know someone for a long time and uh and it was also about what fit on the record i think yeah. at that point it's just that simple sort of had a little it did have a sort of i think it was the better the best of the songs and it sort of it sort of fit in you know in the way the other ones did i think that myrna lee song was you know it was it was a little it was just over over on the countryside a little bit too much just you know uh looking back i don't it it just didn't seem like it really would have fit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting how perceptions of this record have changed, I feel like, because I feel like earlier in Wilco's career, there was definitely a contingent of fans that loved AM and didn't want Wilco to really deviate from that, the sort of old country template that that record draws from. Whereas now I feel like when people talk about their favorite Wilco records, I mean, there's a number of records that people mention, but usually AM isn't at the top of the list. I'm just wondering, like, at the time, did you feel, you know, once you put this record out in the world, that you had to react against it in a way immediately? Because it did seem like it did put you uh, in a pigeonhole I've, almost immediately. I've thought about this a lot, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that... Um, uh, AM was really my my last contribution to Uncle Tupelo. I was an, definitely not uh, secure enough in my own uh, abilities as a songwriter or as a band leader or as anything else. Uh, having a record label give me money to make records, all of that was very, very new and uncomfortable to me. And so I think the comfortable 
reaction to that was to try and, and hang on to the Uncle Tupelo fans. I think that's a pretty natural impulse. And like we've, we've been playing in front of all these people, they'll, hopefully they'll still like what we're doing. And, and, uh, and pretty quickly, not just with the fans, but with the record label people kind of telling me that the record was a, great, a really great way to set up Jay Farrar's next, the Sunvolt record, I, I started becoming a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word, I, like, I wasn't resentful, I was more determined, I think, after that record to like include, I, I remember telling myself honestly, I was like, I've, I liked a lot of music that wasn't appropriate for Uncle Tupelo. I liked a lot of music before I ever met Jay Farrar that he doesn't like and or wasn't as interested in as I am. And that's probably what I should start incorporating <laughs> into what we're doing. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be this diminishing returns trying to hang on to people that don't really care about us that much. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Sunvolt, and this is another thing that gets forgotten about, I think, in Wilco's career. But at the time, when AM, you know, AM comes out in March, I think, of 95, and the first Sunvolt record, Trace, comes out in September. And of course, everyone compares the two records. And in the moment, you know, Trace was the record that people liked more, at least critics liked more. And I'm wondering, I'm sure that was irritating at the time. Did that at all stoke a competitive fire going into the next record that influenced that direction? I was, I was really naive and I had never, obviously never been through anything like that. So I did not anticipate um, there being that much competition projected onto us versus as much as, you know, alongside whatever natural competition was there even when we were in a band together. Um, so, yeah, people taking sides or feeling compelled to take sides was... Uh, I definitely resented that. I definitely thought that that wasn't, wasn't particularly fair, you know. But, you know, Jay made a, made a really great record and, and it's a lot of the same people involved. It's the same producer <laughs> it's like you know it's like in a lot of ways it was kind of like the two combined i could see how people would see them as being like the last uncle tupelo record yeah, yeah. i mean so i mean you know we're talking about like sort of fans projecting on the stuff and of course that still happens i guess in probably some dark corners of the internet but <laughs> um i'm just wondering like just maybe like even like in a friendly competitive way if like you heard that record and you thought okay well I want to top that record, or did that enter your mind at all, or is that, again, part of that projection that fans have? Well, I didn't want to make a bad record. <laughs> you know? I mean, uh, whatever motivates you, um, I don't find there to be any wrong answer to that. Like, if it was, I can't really remember if it was inspired by that much competition with Jay as much as, you know, just a competition with myself, wanting to make a better record, wanting to grow, make a better record than other ones I'd made, make records that were better than other people's records that I was listening to, or just trying hard to make a record that I thought was worthy of being called a record. Yeah, I mean, it seems like going into being there, part of what made that record so different was the approach that the band had, at least in terms of, 
know, it, it seems like AM, the songs are very, you know, concise, straightforward, very structured, very tight songs. Whereas with being there, there was the, you start to see song structures being exploded a little bit. You have sunken treasure, you have but also much more of a non-linear stylistic sort right. of approach and I think that's what that's what th there was a certain abandon in the making of that and I think we had a lot of core really great songs but I remember you still bringing in songs towards mm -hmm. the end of the session that that really made that made kind of made things so it was a sort of this, this kind of this op this open-ended sort of you know, we didn't really have a fixed idea of what it was going to be like at the very beginning, and um, but the, that sort of abandon, I think, was was definitely there. Um, uh, it was a little bit, I don't know, it was a little bit freeing in that I, I don't remember completely thinking we were um, disappointing people or going against some sort of country rock grain, but it was definitely it was more about celebrating the music that we did like, mm -hmm. or maybe diff different, you know, just just hero worship as you said it's just a light bulb going off and like like i'm we're it's just an awareness and we're like not to paint an adversarial relationship with the fans or people that liked uncle tupelo and not liking us it was just an, you know a light bulb going off that that we're never going to be uh as happy trying to reconfirm someone else's idea of what our band should be as we will be incorporating whatever the hell we want to incorporate into our band and and that was really self-liberating and 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 you know uh yeah it was like so there's girl group songs and there's you know open-ended like kind of what our what our abilities would allow uh, noise jams and you know it's like it, it just was um it was just a, an opening or uh, uh you know uh, just an awakening to this idea that we could make ourselves happy and 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 that some of those people might go away and that's that's probably better <laughs> I, I mean was there a eureka moment in terms of how the band you know learned how to work i mean because I, I i just go back to this uh, to the song sunken treasure as being like a pivotal song like listening to that song versus what was on am like where like as you said like am sounds like an extension of uncle tupelo whereas sunken treasure seems like well, this sounds like Wilco, or like you can kind of hear what the types of things you guys would be exploring over the next, you know, couple decades. The sort of improvisational aspect of that song. Uh, I'm just like, how did that develop? That kind of way of being able to work together. Uh, maybe one moment that sticks out for me is just is just really the first in doing misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, this sort of um, tape tape. You know, it was sort of our first time to sort of have the time to experiment with um, with tape and, and and to create that song. That was that was definitely um, you know that it was funny. Like to do this all in real time on 40, 20, 48 tracks, mm -hmm. and you know you know in, in the studio. It definitely speaks to having a lot of studio time for sure as well. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know the the sort of um, the first really forays into noise frankly and like trying to merge conventional sounding sounds with other things and being kind of rewarded by it we like being excited the first time we did it and that's what misunderstood was i think to me we had built up the misunderstood by playing it live for a while too um and what i felt like we were or in hindsight thinking about it, what i feel like 
we were training ourselves to embrace was the notion that there was no failure possible, that that there is um, there's only communication, and and that your your vulnerabilities and if you make the wrong choice musically or you make the wrong choice lyrically, but as long as you're out there being um, unafraid of failing. Uh, you're inter you're entertaining in a in a righteous way, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And that to me, all rock and roll, the best rock and roll. You watch a performance on TV or you go see somebody. To me, all rock and roll has that that invariably has that quality where you cannot picture there being any failure associated with what you're seeing. You know, they could drop their guitars and they could like they play the wrong chord and it's not going to be perceived as failure because that's not the fucking point. And, and Misunderstood, I think, was our first embracing of that. Up until then, it was a lot of like, oh my God, there's a lot of people here. We better like try and make um, no mistakes, you know, and, and get good at playing well, which we worked really hard to do. And this was kind of letting go of that and saying, that's not, ideally, that isn't the point. Um, nobody's coming here to see us play music, to uh, witness just virtuosity <laughs> or, or, or like or impeccable execution even today I don't as much as people talk about the musicianship and will go I, I still think that that's like that's hopefully kind of still the key point is that I don't know it's it's gonna fall apart sometimes and it's that that's okay I mean is the flip side of that that because uh, like when I listen to that record I, I also feel like this is a band aspiring to greatness. Like they're working on a big canvas. They're doing a lot of different kinds of songs. The fear of failure is there, but the excitement comes that there's these big swings being taken. And it's like, yeah, we might fail, but if we connect, we're gonna really create something, you know, powerful here. I mean, it seems like that's something that also animated that record in a way. Like that kind of outsized ambition yeah, we're deluded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a healthy amount of like pretension and delusion in any rock band that that uh, I don't know. You have to kind of believe in it and have to believe that it has an importance to other people um, based on how disproportionately it's important to you, um, your relationship with records and your relationship with other artists and things like that is so paramount. Uh, to me, especially at that point in my life, that was really, those were the best friends that I had, I think. Uh, not just the guys in the band, but the, the, the records that we were drawing upon, you know? They were the, mo the greatest comfort I'd had found in my life. So, and I, I think that that still exists 100%. Uh, it's, that's what, it, that's what it's for. It's the great, it's the great con consolation of, uh, just reminding people that they're 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 not alone, you know. That there's somebody else that cares about them, or cares the same way. And I, I think that also kind of speaks in the the record's relationship to rock mythology. Because I mean, I know you've talked a lot about this in interviews, the mythology around rock musicians and the phoniness of that. But there's also a lot of songs in this record about being on the road. 
you know, the tour life. At least that's how I hear the record. Yeah, we pioneered that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, there's sort of an, an inherent romance to that as a listener. For me, as someone who loves rock and roll, like, I, I get swept up in that. And I, I, I always thought about more of it as a fan record, you know? Just like Lonely One and, you know. Right. And, and, you know, I've always thought about being more of a, I don't know, that way. That's, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I guess I like that duality of it. I feel like there's, on one hand, a critique of that. And on the other hand, there's a celebration of it, and they kind of go hand in hand on that record. To me, uh, I mean, the record is, uh, obviously it's a record by a rock band, but the angle, when I listen to it now, and the way I still feel today, is that I'm always on the outside of that a little bit. Maybe just because I pr primarily look at myself as a, as a fan or a music listener, but also because I know enough about myself to not embrace that mythology, the self-destructive mythology, the other things. I mean, I, in other words, I know I'm a, I know I'm a normal guy. I know I'm a, like a totally normal person that just happens to be in a rock band, and that's that's good enough to me. That's revolutionary <laughs> to just say that's okay. Um, yeah. But, you know, like I had inspiration from that from like people like Jonathan Richmond and, and people that were like, like put pushed away all of the ideas that you had to fit into uh, the Rolling Stone model or Rolling Stones model or, or uh, the, I don't know, the punk rock model. It's like part of it's growing up in a pretty provincial little town and never being able to quite get it right. You know, I don't even know where they got those clothes. Where did they find shit like that, you know? Um, but there's always a sense, and, and I, and I kind of still feel like this, again, is part of what Wilco, defines Wilco today, is we're, we're obviously embraced and we're, part, we're, we're on the inside of something. But at the same time, I feel like we're, we're pretty far outside of... of whatever is hip or whatever is popular or you know it's uh it's always on the outside of whatever side there was <laughs> Sorry. is that a lyric is Dylan, yeah 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 that's oh right right joey yeah yeah yeah, yeah we're we're living a, talking about mythologizing we're living a we're living a dylan lyric man <laughs> okay. i mean i and you just referenced that song the lonely one which is like one of my favorite songs on the record. I just think that's like such a moving song about being a fan. And I wonder, I mean, obviously you're writing about that. I would, when I listen to it, I imagine that you relate to the kid in the song. I'm wondering if you have a different perspective on that 20 years later, knowing that there might be people who think of your own band that way as the guy in the song thinks about his favorite like musician. We don't play that song very often, but whenever we do, I'm not entirely sure which side I'm on. I'm, I'm, I, I, honestly, I still feel mostly identified with the the sadness of um, needing the friendship of records, <laughs> needing the, the needing the feeling that that somebody that is so distant from you knows you. Yeah. Um, I don't think of myself as being the object of that uh, uh, adoration or need or whatever. 
So I don't know. We don't play it very often, and when we do, I get I get a little choked up, but I but I don't know why exactly. I don't, but I I don't definitely don't see myself as the guy with the gold lame or. You know. <laughs> but I mean, people certainly listen to Wilco records and feel like, oh, this record understands me in the same way. I'm sure you guys have records that you listen to and it understands. Me. I mean, it is a sad song, but it also I think it chokes me up because. Um, there's something beautiful about that too, especially at least you have the record. You know, like if the mm -hmm. if the kid in that song didn't have the record, you'd ha you'd have nothing. Yeah. You know, so that's better than nothing. Yeah, <laughs> is it? <laughs> I think there's a lot of things. Uh, I think the I think that art works in 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 that way, and that um, whether that record existed or not. Uh, the fact that records exist and art exists allows that connection to happen. In other words, I think that people that need it find it where where they can yeah. in, a, in, a, in a culture where there's enough people that are free to make art. In some cultures, there probably is, you know, a day-to-day -day survival is, is, is uh, overriding any impulse to create in that way, but and I don't even know if that's true because I think that... Um, you know, in other words, I don't, I'm always kind of like, kind of philosophically not entirely sure that any one piece of art is actually that valuable versus the, the, the inspiration to make art, you know, like people making art, the, the ability for people to make art and inspire other people to make art to me seems way more valuable than any one painting or poem or, or wow. song or record or anything like that. I don't know. I just, I just remember Lester Bangs once, like he was ripping uh, uh, blood, uh, blood on the Tracks, and he said, uh, this record doesn't teach me anything about women. It's just a crying towel for people. And I remember reading that saying, well, some, uh, there have been times where I needed a crying towel in my life. So I was grateful for Blood on the Tracks at this like, time. He looks like a guy that learned a lot about re women from records. <laughs> yeah. You might just want to talk to a woman. Right. That, yeah. that might be a better way to go sure, than yeah. listen to Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite pieces of trivia about being there. Some of that stuff is so laughably naive now when you look back on yeah, it and think yeah. about it like early rock. I mean, he's a great writer and is inspiring to me as a lot of records. But yeah, it's so so naive and disproportionate the amount of weight being given to things that were just he couldn't wrap his head around the fact that it's just being done by guys like him that are yeah. just like just happen to learn how to play guitar but in the it's kind of beautiful naive day that he wouldn't even realize it or you know. I, mean, I try to remember that he was probably 25 when he wrote that because yeah. i think he died when he was 33 so he was, he was a young man when he died and wrote a lot of his most well-known stuff when he was still in his 20s, and I wouldn't want to be defined by it. I was thinking about Peter Loeffner, you know, when we were talking, the fandom thing, too, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, what, I don't know. I, I didn't really have anything to add to that, but, <laughs> but just, you know, just about, about that, just that I always thought, you know, I don't know. That was, I guess that's when we were, thinking about music critics from the free, 70s free. <laughs> and tricking themselves to death at 25 or whatever. You know? Free internet, you know, misfits had a lot tougher time, you know, I think, finding their tribes, you know. And, uh, you know, now there are a lot of, of other problems, you know, that the internet has created. But 
that one, that particular problem seems uh, kind of quaint in the internet age. You know, like I know even the most, uh, I don't know, woefully socially inept kids that are friends with my kids in high school have vast friend networks that they've been able to, they can, they can draw from a pool that is, is, is uh, global mm -hmm. to find some uh, thing, way to identify and way into to humanity and culture and, 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 and being not alone. But, but yeah, a guy growing up in the Midwest and having, you know, just being out of step just that much, just enough to fall behind and not really make any really close friends. Um, records were a pretty, I guess, a pretty uh, healthy adaptation. <laughs> right, you know, um, obviously, you know, Wicko's always been a band that hasn't dwelled too much on what you just did. I mean, if you look at the history of the band, each record is different. I don't want to say that it's reactive to the previous record, but there's certainly been a forward progression. But, you know, now we're talking about these first two records. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, I mean, you guys have been together for a long time, playing in a band together. How often do you reflect on your own history? And how much does that impact what you do moving forward in this band? Hmm. Only, only reissue time, <laughs> pretty much for me. I think it's the only time I really dig in. I did, I did have a, ma a I have a, like you. I mean, you must have a massive trove of memorabilia, mm -hmm. and uh, I was asked to sort of go through and try to find a few things from you know that that era. And it's just so big, and it was never cataloged, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's sort of, in many ways, it's a metaphor for my memories of that time in mm -hmm. a box above my garage, and <laughs> I'll get to it someday, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, no, it's, I, it's, it's like, it's, but as, as far as informing what comes forward, it, it's, it's, I just don't know how it, I don't know how it could in many ways, you know. Um, I, I think I've an overwhelming sense of um, that what I get is uh, f good fortune, I would say, you know. In, in knowing, you know, people that I've made music with, and I think that's the sort of pervading emotion for me. Yeah, I mean, the only time I get a sense of uh, history or a feeling of history uh, when John and I are together, or basically with the whole band, is and just the further along it goes, the more gratitude I think that the, the band has. It's not really, we don't really directly focus it on the fact that there's like a lot of history, but there's just something that makes you appreciate it more and more every year, that this is, is just the thing that we keep, to, keep getting to do. Um, I don't know if that's really answering your question, but but that's what made that's what the first thing I thought of is like how does history play into what Wilco does? It uh, maybe it gives us a sense of well-being, you know, in that we if we had, if uh, if one bad show was going to ruin our career, it would have happened a long time ago. <laughs> or if any one record was going to do that, it would have happened already. So there's some of those stakes are a little bit lower, but the overall appreciation and gratitude. Um, to me, makes up for it because there's a there's a feeling of responsibility to be 
uh, true to it or, or to not squander it. I guess I'm just wondering if you ever take a uh, the opportunity just like to put on being there or look at being there and go, oh, this is a, this is a good record. <laughs> I'm proud of this record. Does that ever, do you ever allow yourself a moment to do that or uh, does that not really ever enter the picture? Oh, wait, I do. We did listen when we uh, did the um, Solid Sound being night of being there. And it, uh, so I did, I did sort of, I mean, I think, I don't know how much you had to go over it, but I did, I listened to it and, and sort of studied what, what we had done differently in the years, you know, and trying to, trying to, we tried to remain true to the original arrangement. So it was, it was a good, it wasn't a, it was, it was nice to listen to, I, I'll say, and it was nice to also not be listening solely for nostalgia. There was some, yeah. there was something, <laughs> there was a purpose and there was some, you know, so um, it made me feel less uh, weird or something. I mean, you mentioned the nostalgia thing. Is there any fear in that regard that if you do dwell too much on this stuff that it like will swallow you in a way, like like swallowed by your own past? Well, that's or the thing I was struck by in relearning the original arrangements of being there is that one of the ways that we've avoided nostalgia is by keeping all of our, almost every era of the band or every record of the band still has material being played. So it's become contemporary over time with us. It's kind of traveled with us. Our catalog or like our repertoire has just gotten bigger, but we don't look at it necessarily as oh, we have to play a certain amount of songs from these records or the nostalgia won't be there for the fans or whatever, you know. So, but, but yeah, everything that we, you know, most of the songs that we play a lot are very different on the record. So, um, uh, the, the feeling after we played it, the way it was, you know, we learned all the arrangements on the record and the feeling after we played this double record for an audience at our festival, uh, was just like, um, I don't know, it just it felt very, uh, like there's a lot of love in the air. <laughs> I don't know, and not necessarily for the record itself, but, 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 but just being a part of this connection and being able to honor this, this thing that we had made and, and include the element that the audience had made somehow. Yeah. You know, like that, that 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 wasn't entirely ours, never has been since it came out. So there was this feeling that we had collaborated with this audience to to sort of resurrect this thing, but it it would it felt in a way like it never ever could have possibly felt twenty something years ago because um, everybody had put so much of themselves into it, the audience included. Yeah, I mean. That's an interesting point. I mean, it sounds like, at least for like the like the best known songs on the record, that they kind of live on in a way that they're not just frozen in number, like that. Like they can, you can yeah. play "Misunderstood" and it, it it's it's a 2017 song. Yeah, they're sort of living along. They're living. They're still alive with us. You know, mm -hmm. um, we sort of with this with this lineup. We um, we. I, we had a, a, a series or a series of shows in Chicago where we, we we played everything on every record. So it was a great way to sort of just get in and 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 just literally play everything. Not that we've continued to play all the cuts, but they have many of the songs have a sort of they um, there's there's an, the new members have an ownership of them. Yeah. Um, probably more so than any any of the past lineups ever had for the original right. materials. So that that's you know vital to that 
to that sort of that seemed like a, a nice way to avoidance. Yeah. <laughs> that seemed like a nice way to go forward at that time to just like say these are like this you is own these as much as any you know? yeah. Yeah. All right, well, they're waving me off here, so I will let you guys We're go. We're waving you off. We'll make it look like... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> your guy is. But hey, guys, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate nice it. Nice talking you. to you. Nice yeah. talking to you. All right, there you have it. That was Jeff Tweedy and John Sterrett talking about AM and being there. Uh, those records, again, are being reissued. They will be out on December 1st. And uh, what you're going to get on those records, you're going to get the records that are remastered. You're going to get outtakes and uh, alternate versions you're going to get some live tracks uh the being there uh set especially uh is really expansive there's a lot of stuff on that am has some cool stuff too but the the being there is like it's a pretty meaty set for a very meaty record and of course uh my liner notes are in there so if you want to read about the record you want to read what i have to say about it you can do that too um before we go, I want to plug a couple of things uh, that we wrote about, that I wrote about on Uproxx. I guess the only thing I really wrote about last week, because it was a holiday week, uh, was uh, Malcolm Young of, a- of ACDC. Of course, he passed away. Um, I guess that was on November 18th or so. It was that weekend. Um, and I wrote a tribute to him. You know, what made him such a great rhythm guitarist, like one of the great rhythm guitar players of all time. Uh, so... If you want to check out my tribute to Malcolm Young of ACDC, uh, please do that at uprocks.com. Otherwise, I want to give a shout-out to our producer, Derek Madden. He's the one who puts these episodes together. And also uh, uh, Josh Copperman, who wrote our theme song. And how cool is it that we have a theme song? I love how that sounds at the top of the episode. We almost sound like a professional outfit at this point, Derek. We're getting there. We're getting there, maybe. Uh, Well, guys, thanks again. For listening to this week uh remember we uh we have a bunch more episodes here coming up until december 18th and then we're taking a hiatus a couple months off and then we'll be back for the rest of 2018 and we have some great episodes coming at you uh in these closing weeks so i'm excited to get to that all right guys thanks again we will uh talk at you later take care mm.